Today's scripture comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hey, you. Remember me? <laughs> Good to see all of you. Uh, for those of you who may be visiting us for the first time, uh, my name is Pastor John. I'm actually one of the pastors here. Uh, I've been kind of MIA for the past few weeks because dun, 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 I had another baby. And uh, you know, many of you were texting and emailing saying, oh, how are you guys? How is Sarah's homonym? How's, how's the pastor doing? And, and you always ask this question, how do you do it? You know, like as if we have some magic secret, but you know what? We do have a little secret. You know how we do it? We do it because of you. Uh, for these past few weeks, we have been bombarded with you guys loving on us, not only praying, but feeding our family. Not only uh, Sarah's Hamani, but also me. She gives me a few crumbs at her tables from the foods that you give. And so thank you for letting me uh, keep going by uh, feeding our family. And our children have been loving all the wonderful morsels that you guys have provided, as well as the ongoing visitations and prayers that you've given to us. So it's because of people like you that our family is able to care and welcome uh, our children, including our newest addition, Josiah Valor, my little JV, who you'll have an opportunity to meet, uh, hopefully um, by the end of this year and the beginning of next. So welcome and thank you again, NCF, and welcome to our visitors. Uh, without further ado, now let's ask for the Lord uh, to bless our time as we hear his word. Father, we ask that you would bless us now as we have gathered here under the promise that you have given to us. Lord, you have made the promise, <clears throat> not only that our God speaks, that you speak in such a way that resonates deep into our hearts, that speaks and addresses issues that we ourselves cannot even fathom in our own hearts. And we ask now that you would prepare us to hear from you yet again words of life, words of encouragement, words of empowerment, so that we could go out as your saints, as your ambassadors, as your soldiers as your beloved children who are called to serve as witnesses to a world that is in desperate need of the message that you have entrusted us with, that the words that we speak and the words that we live out before a watching world would testify to a God who is not only there, but a God who is near and dear to the hearts of those who would seek him. And Father, we pray now that as we enter into this season of Advent, that you would help us to remember that we would remember the hope of the gospel that was embodied through your son, Jesus Christ, as he was born into this world, that is our temporary home, leading us to our ultimate home, which is the dwelling place of God for all eternity. Father, I pray for those among us here who don't know you, who are yet here investigating, seeking truth. God, I pray that you would not disappoint them and that you would speak to them in a way that they would discover a God that may be new to them, a God who has known them since the beginning before they even existed, a God who is their creator and their maker, a God who is their father above. God, we ask now that you would bless this message in spite of the one who brings it, for we ask all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen. You know, when most of us imagine the kind of person that Jesus is like, we typically imagine a Jesus who's very calm, very gentle, very soft-spoken. 
You know, that person who has that still small voice, who speaks with such calmness and serenity. And one of the reasons, if not the main reasons, why we imagine Jesus to be this way is because of the images of Christ that we've been exposed to growing up if we grew up in a Christian household. Images like the following, right? If you've seen images like this growing up, either because in your churches they were uh, hanging on the walls of the hallways of the building that you worshipped in, or maybe even in the hallways of your parents' home that are still there to this day, have no doubt influenced you in seeing Jesus as a very calm, very serene figure to where he's so docile, surrounded by little cute children and surrounded by white fluffy sheep or lambs. To the point where you imagine Jesus to be a non-threatening, passive presence. Now, the consequences of seeing Jesus in this way is that it causes the followers of Jesus to have these same characteristics imputed to them to where when our culture imagines what a devoted follower of Christ looks like, they imagine this guy, Ned Flanders, right, from The Simpsons. Right? You guys know who Ned Flanders is. The Simpsons is still on, I believe, to this day, is it not? Yeah. On Fox, it's on every Sunday night, right? Here you have this happy-go-lucky dude who is non-confrontational, very passive, unthreatening in any way. And the idea is, is that when you follow Jesus, you end up looking like this guy because that's who Jesus is. He's very passive, he's very non-threatening, and he's very non-confrontational. Well, you know what? All of that is about to change today, or at least it should. Because today we're going to encounter a Jesus that is far from being non-threatening and far from being non-confrontational. Because today, in this passage that we're looking at, comprised of just two small verses in the Gospel of Matthew, we're going to encounter Jesus that is so bold, so audacious, and yet I would even dare say even threatening to us. Because he is going to challenge us in a way that we don't want to be challenged. He's going to push a button in us that we don't want to be pushed right? He is going to confront us on how we are to live, right? Because in reality, as he will show us, there are only two ways to live and only two, and you cannot live both lives simultaneously. And the way that he embodies this idea of these two ways to live is through this imagery of two gates, one wide and one narrow. And so with that in mind, There are three things that I'd like to share with you that Jesus is teaching us in this passage when it comes to how we live life as is exhibited through these two possible ways of living by going through two possible metaphorical gates. First, I want to talk about why the wide gate is attractive. Number two, I want to talk about why the narrow gate is narrow. And finally, I want to end it with why the narrow gate is better, why the wide gate is attractive, why the narrow gate is narrow, and why the narrow gate is better. Let's jump right in with the beginning point of why the wider gate is attractive. Starting in verse 13, Jesus says the following, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. Here Jesus begins our passage by telling his listening audience that we should go to what he refers to as the narrow gate. But before he's explaining what exactly that means and why we should do so, he first goes on a little tangent by talking first about the wider gate, the wider gate. And the thing about the wider gate that's pretty obvious is that it's the gate that's more attractive of the two gates that are before us. Look again at what he says about the wide gate at the end of the verse. He says, those who enter by it being it. The wider gate are many, or as the NIV translates it, many enter through it. In other words, this wider gate draws in the masses. It attracts the crowd. And the question is, why? 
What's so significant? What's so special about this wider gate to where it just draws in the masses, to where everybody wants to flock towards it, to where the crowds seemingly be unavoidably attracted to it? Well, there are actually two answers to that question, and the first answer is actually pretty easy to figure out. Why is the wider gate so attractive? Simple, because that's the gate that everyone goes to. It's the one where the crowds go and flock towards. You see, Jesus is teaching us a peculiar human behavior way before social scientists and cultural anthropologists discovered the same thing. And that is there's something about human nature that is just drawn to go where everyone else goes. There's something about the way that the human psyche is wired to where we are just gravitating to go where we see everyone else going to where we want to do what everyone else does and experience what everyone else experiences. In high school, we called it peer pressure. Among social science uh, circles, they call it human herding. And this is something they've actually done scientific studies on. Just a few years ago, on the Ad Savvy blog, Ad Savvy, not Savvy, Savvy blog. It's not Oikos, it's Oikos, by the way. Um, little inside joke. But at Savvy blog, there was a, a study that was done a few years ago at the University of Leeds in London, where they wanted to do a social experiment. They took... 10 volunteers and they told them to go into a very crowded area of the city and just walk around, right? Just in random patterns, but just walk around like they're going somewhere and see what would happen. The results were staggering. Within the hour, 95% of the crowd that were in this area started randomly and intentionally following this crowd, not asking any questions, not trying to interact with the people going, but they just started following. And what was so crazy is that the rate of growth was very exponential to where by the end of the experiment, over 200 people started following a bunch of random strangers they'd never met, 10 of them, because they seemed to be going somewhere. When the scientists asked these individuals why they followed these strangers, they all said something very similar, which was, they seemed to know where they were going. That's what they said. See, one of the things that we discover about human behavior is that we tend to follow the crowd. Here is one of many instances where science validates what Jesus taught about life, in this instance, human behavior. We are wired to follow the crowd. And this is something that we do every day of our lives, is it not? For example, you want to know whether that restaurant that just opened a few months ago is worth going and spending your money on? What do you do? You go on Yelp and you see if they had many reviews that were very positive, and hence, if it did, you go. You want to know if that latest movie that came out is worth watching, and so what do you do? You click on Rotten Tomatoes and you look if it had how many high percentage points, high percentage tomatoes, and if it had a lot, you know what you're doing Saturday night. Whether right or wrong, we are wired to follow the crowd, and it's because of this human phenomenon, Jesus says what he does. The wider gate is attractive because that is the way we go, right? We have this tendency to want to follow the crowd. That's one of the reasons why the wider gate is so attractive. But now, with that said, however, that is not the only reason. Because Jesus is going to tell us there's a greater reason, a second reason why we follow the crowd. And he tells it right here in verse 13. Notice how he describes the Y gate in the middle of verse 13. What does he say about it? He says it's easy, right? Now, that's an unfortunate English translation of the original Greek because in the original Greek, the word that's actually recorded for us as to what Jesus actually said is the word open. Not easy, 
open, as in wide open spaces, roomy open spaces, vast open spaces. And what Jesus is getting at by using this word is this idea of boundless freedom. Freedom that is not constrained, that is not constricted, that is not limited in any way, but complete, absolute freedom. And here Jesus begins to show us why this wider gate is so attractive. Because it promises us freedom. Freedom. And freedom is the thing that our culture says is the most important thing in life. In fact, it is life. Where there is freedom, there is life. And a life that has no freedom is no life at all. You see, the fundamental core belief that our culture teaches us all the time is that the purpose of life is to be free, right? Free to do whatever you want to do. Free to identify yourself the way you want to identify yourself as. Free to be whatever you say you are. Free to go wherever you want to go. Free to be with whoever you want to be with. This is the mantra. This is the gospel that our culture is constantly preaching to us. Your purpose in life is to be free. And it's because of this core belief that explains why so many think and feel and behave the way they do. This is why people, as they get older, get more depressed. Why? Because all of the youthful possibilities and opportunities that were available are no longer available simply by their aging. This is why young people flock to places like New York, because how else are you going to try and attempt to satisfy this yearning of wanting to experience freedom than a city that seems to offer vastless opportunities to experience these things? This is why young single people are not getting married these days, why they're not entering into serious relationships no matter how long they've dated a person because why constrict yourself to just one person when who knows who you will serendipitously meet in this city somehow, some way. This is why many of your parents immigrated to this country in the 70s and 80s because they wanted to give themselves and you limitless opportunities to have things and experiences in life that you could not have gotten in their home country. This is why the wider gate is so attractive. And in fact, the primary reason, because it promises to give you what our culture says is the ultimate goal in life. Freedom. Wide open freedom. Wide open freedom where you have endless access to experiences, encounters, and engagements. The more freedom you have, the more you have to look forward to in life. And therefore, the more sense of hope and joy that you feel that your life has. But here's the problem. Look at what Jesus says ends up happening to those who end up going down this path known as the wider gate. What does he say in 13? For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. Here Jesus tells us that this wide gate, as attractive as it may be, and as promising it may seem, will ultimately lead you who go down it into tremendous despair and suffering and ultimately your destruction. And the question is, how could that be? How could it be that a gate that seems so meant to be, a gate where you seem to be belong to, where you're made for, end up leads you into a place and a situation that is totally not where you should end up at all? How can it be that the wide gate be completely contradicting to what our instinct says that it is? That's a great question. And let me attempt to answer it now by going to my next point, why the narrow gate is narrow. Pick it up with me in verse 14 where it reads, For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Now, after talking about what the wider gate was, Jesus is now ready to describe for us this narrow gate. But here's the thing. When you first read his description of the narrow gate, 
It's very unattractive. It's very unappealing. Why? Because of the very descriptive word he uses to describe it. What does he call it? He calls it the narrow gate. Let me ask you guys. Do you guys living, do you guys like living in spaces that are very narrow, like your current apartment? Do you guys hanging out? Do you guys like hanging out with narrow-minded people? Are you drawn to ideology that's very narrow in its view and its application of freedom? I would venture to guess probably not, right? Why? Because usually narrowness in our culture has stigma attached to it, and rightly so. Because people who are narrow or places that are narrow are either uncomfortable or they're wrong, right? Right? Narrow apartments are not comfortable. I know because my apartment feels very narrow today, right? For the past two weeks it has. Being around narrow-minded people doesn't make you feel like you're hanging around with the right kinds of people. Narrowness in our culture has such negative ideas and attachments to it. And when you couple that with the kinds of people who Jesus says ends up in this gate, it further makes this gate seem more unappealing, more unattractive. Because who does he say in verse 14 end up getting into this gate? Those who find it are few. Few? Jesus, did you really mean few? Like mean like the, like the few 1% in our society who are extremely rich? Like the few of the VIPs who get to go into those nice exclusive places in the city that no one else can go to? The few who have all the resources, all the power, right? When you first read this description of the narrow gate, it just sounds very uninclusive. It sounds very uninviting. It sounds very elitist and it sounds very snobbish. And yet Jesus says, that's where you need to go. That's the gate you are meant for. That's the gate that is your destiny. And the question is, how could that be? Why would that be the case? See, here we begin to see Jesus challenging some assumptions that we have about life, more specifically, the assumptions that we carry of what we think makes life, life. What makes life worth living. Again, the culture tells us that what makes life, life, what makes life truly the best is when you are free. The more freedom you have, the better life is, the more life is the way it's supposed to be. But here Jesus tells us the exact opposite. Because according to him, life is not best when you have unlimited freedom. No, life is best when your freedom is limited. Again, Jesus says life is best not when you have unlimited freedom, but when your freedom is limited. Now, I know some of you hear me say that, and you completely disagree. But before you give in to that temptation, consider these real-world examples that some of you may have experienced in your own life. First illustration. Imagine you have a high school senior, stellar scholar, really wanting to get into one of three Ivy League schools, Harvard, Princeton, and Binghamton. I'm just kidding. (laughs) Harvard, Princeton, and Yale, right? Harvard, Princeton, if it was a real illustration, I would say Duke, UNC, and Harvard, but anyway, but let's just say these three Ivy Leagues, Harvard, Princeton, and Yale. This girl just doesn't care which one she gets. She just wants to get into any of them because she loves all these schools equally. And it turns out she gets accepted by all three. And not only does she get accepted by all three, they give her a full ride scholarship. They give her stipend for room and board, for books, for meals, and for a little cash on the side. All three. Now, let me ask you, do you think that this college senior is going to have these acceptance letters on her bed where she's going to be prancing up and down with joy? Or do you think she's going to be pacing back and forth with utter anxiety and frustration? Because after all, she has freedom. 
She can choose whichever school she wants. But does that freedom feel liberating for that young girl? I would imagine it doesn't. I imagine it wasn't for you when you got accepted into a lot of good schools. Illustration number two. Let's say it's your birthday and you're starving. And your friend somehow, someway got you into that exclusive restaurant that takes years to get a table at. Somehow they pulled it off. They had a connection. And you're at this awesome restaurant. You're starving. You're ready to eat what is considered the best dish. And you look at the menu. Here's the problem. Nothing is popping out. Not one thing is popping out. You know what, what is popping out? Everything is popping out. Oh, I want to eat this. I want to eat that. No, I want to eat this. You have complete freedom to eat anything that you want. Right? But are you going to feel in that moment truly free? No. What's my point? My point is this. Your life is not capable of experiencing limitless freedom. Your life is not capable of experiencing limitless freedom. Just like that senior cannot go to three different schools, just like your stomach cannot handle an entire menu full of food, your life is not capable of experiencing unlimited, wide-open freedom. You can't learn everything you want to learn. You can't read everything that you want to read. Believe me, I, I tried. Right? You can't go everywhere you want to go. You can't be with everything, everyone that you want to be with. You can't do everything that you want to do. Why? Because you are a limited being. It doesn't matter how much talent you have. It doesn't matter how much money is in your account. It doesn't matter you know, how young you are. It doesn't matter how many opportunities you've been given. By virtue of the fact that you are limited by space and time, it's proof that you are not designed to go to the wider gate. You are not created to be able to experience unlimited, unwavering, wide open freedom, which also means you are created for the narrow gate. You are designed for the narrow gate. That's the one that you were created for. And when you consider how Jesus describes the main thing that distinguishes the narrow gate, you understand why he says this. Because what's so unique about this narrow gate? What does he say in verse 14? That makes this gate set apart from the other one. It leads to life. It leads to life. Isn't that interesting? The wider gate, which promises unlimited freedom, which our culture defines as true life. Jesus says, no, if you want life, you have to go to the narrow gate. But here's the thing. The way Jesus understands life is very different from our culture's understanding of life. Because Jesus' understanding of life is synonymous to what the Bible says life is truly life. And to give you a clear understanding of what that is, we turn to Psalm 36, verse 9, where we come to the classic text that defines, from a biblical standpoint, what true life is, where it writes, For with you, God, is the fountain of life. In your light do we see light. The Bible tells us that what makes life life is not unlimited freedom, but it's life with God. What makes life life, according to scripture, is not you having every chance, every opportunity, unlimited freedom to do whatever, be whatever, and go wherever you want. No, true life, according to scripture, is when you have life with God, where he knows you and where you know him. And when you understand that, then you can further understand why Jesus defines this gate as a narrow gate. Because think with me for just a moment, okay? Go back to this idea of a wider gate, all right? What is the wider gate? When you have a wide gate, not only can you go through it, but other people can go in it with you, right? You can go in at the same time with other people through a wide gate. But with a narrow gate, 
where there's very limited space, the idea behind that is, Jesus is saying, this gate is a gate that has only room for one. No other person can go in this gate with you. All right? Only you can go through it. You cannot go in it with anyone else but just yourself. And when we further remember that this is a symbolic imagery of one's relationship with God, Jesus is making a very clear point, which is what? Your relationship with God, according to Jesus, cannot solely depend on other people. Let me say that again. Your relationship with God cannot be solely based on other people's relationship with God. And this is something we need to get because I think for many of us in this room, we really define our relationship with God by our associations with other people who know God. For example, many of you in this room, your parents went to church. And because your parents went to church, you went to church. And because you went to church, got involved with youth group, went on retreats, went on missions, you think by just by virtue of association of your parents' faith that you have genuine faith. Or when you go off to college, right? You go to KCF, Korean Christian Fellowship, right? Because all your friends are going there. Because that good-looking girl is attending. Because that hunky of a man is attending. What Pastor James once referred to as holy hotties, which I was considered once at one point, right? And so you go, and you build friendships, you build relationships, and you participate in religious activities, and you think, I know I have a genuine relationship with God because the context of my relationship with God has always been in the context of community with other people. Jesus is saying, look, if the only basis of why you think you have a relationship with me is by virtue of you following the crowd, you haven't entered into the narrow gate. You may not have a genuine, real relationship with me. Just because you followed the crowd into the church doesn't mean you're in the kingdom. Just because you followed the crowd and went on mission trips and retreats doesn't mean you have a genuine faith in him. Now, don't get me wrong. Don't misunderstand what I am saying. I am not saying that in order to be a genuine Christian, you have to be a lone ranger Christian. You just isolate yourself with just me and my Bible and my journal. Pray to God and you live as a modern day monk, you know, in an enclave somewhere isolated from everyone else. No, I'm not saying that because scripture is clear. If you want to know God and grow in your knowledge of God, you need other people, other Christians called the church to where they help you know and grow and you help others know and grow who God is. But my point is, if the sole basis, if the only basis of why you feel you have genuine faith and therefore a real relation with God is simply because you just followed the crowd because you've associated with people who are Christians, you may not have, and most likely you don't have a genuine relationship with God at all. Just to further clarify, consider this quote from Pastor James Boyce because he really hits the nail on the head. Listen to what he says. Quote, Following the Lord Jesus Christ is an individual matter, but it is not individualistic. When we say that discipleship is an individual matter, we are saying that it is something that the individual himself must do. No one else can follow Jesus for you. Your wife cannot be your proxy. Your children cannot read the Bible for you, pray for you, obey the Lord for you. You must do these things yourself. And if you do not do them, you are not a true disciple. Individualism is something different. The dictionary defines individualism as any doctrine of practice based on the assumption that the individual and not the society is the paramount consideration or end. Christianity is not individualistic individualistic because it never it is never merely the individual but also all other persons who are in view end quote at some point you as an individual have to make the personal decision to say 
God is worth committing my entire life to. At some point, you as an individual, not because your friends are doing it, not because that's the way your parents raised you, not because that's where all your friends are participating in as part of their social outlet. No, because you as an individual, to where even if you were the only Christian in a certain city, to where there were no other churches around you, like in some parts of the world where some of our brothers and sisters are suffering severe persecution, like Peter and Chris, our missionary friends did, right? That you can still say, I will still have faith in my God. I will still have a relationship with God, right? That is what Jesus is getting at when he says, when you must enter the narrow gate, you must have a relationship with me that is not dependent on other people, but is solely dependent on me. Faith alone in Christ alone, you see. In Christ alone, not in family alone, not in church alone, but in Christ alone. And the implication is very profound because what Jesus is saying by saying all this is this idea that because your relationship with him must be this sincere, this personal, this unique, this individual, that also means that you must be willing to give up anything and anyone in order to have it. Right? That you must be willing to forsake any dream that you're pursuing, any goals that you're trying to achieve, any person who's attached to you that's keeping you from God, whether it be your parents, whether it be other family members, whether it be lovers, spouses, children, friends, right? anything and anyone in order to have this God. Right? That's hard, isn't it? Quite frankly, that's very hard. This is why it's called a hard saying of Jesus, this teaching right here. It's very hard to accept. It's very hard to hear. It's very hard to obey, right? But can I be a little bit honest with you guys? Can we be a little frank here, brutally frank? I'm worried that for some of us, maybe for too many of us, when it comes to your Christianity, it doesn't feel too hard. You're quite comfortable in your faith, you know why? You haven't gone through the narrow gate. And what I mean that what I mean by that practically is simply that you're pursuing certain things you shouldn't be pursuing. You're pursuing certain dreams, certain goals you shouldn't be trying to achieve. You're trying to pursue certain relationships with people that you shouldn't have in your life. Or you're worried about certain things or you're frustrated about certain events that you shouldn't be worried or frustrated about. You're burdened with things that you shouldn't be burden in too often and too many we see people in the church trying to both have one part of them go through the wider gate and another part go through the narrow right please don't take a picture right now because i know i look utterly ridiculous right and it just doesn't work it's hard it's impossible this is why jesus says two ways and only two ways for one solitary you which is it going to be is it going to be the wider gate or is it going to be the narrow? Right? We all know what the right answer is. It's the narrow. But how do we do that when it's just so hard? How do we do that when it just seems so opposed to every instinct that we have? Here we come to the final point, why the narrow gate is better. In his book, The Reason for God, Pastor Tim Keller talks about this concept, what he calls liberating restriction. Liberating restriction. And to explain, he gives a very powerful and very poignant illustration listen to what he says excuse me quote if you have musical aptitude 
You may give yourself to practice, practice, practice the piano for years. This is a restriction, a limit on your freedom. There are many other things you won't be able to do with the time you invest in practicing. If you have the talent, however, the discipline and limitation will unleash an ability that would otherwise go untapped. What have you done? You've deliberately lost your freedom to engage in some things in order to release yourself to a richer kind of freedom to accomplish other things, end quote. What is Dr. Keller saying? He's saying that if you want to experience some of the best things in life, you have to be willing to restrict yourself to a sense of freedom that in reality you don't even really have anyway. In order to experience some of the most richest freedoms that God has embedded in reality, you have to be willing to say no to certain things, to where you have to deny yourself and deprive yourself of certain things, certain opportunities, certain types of people, certain kinds of activities in order to encounter these things, which in this particular case is musical aptitude. If you're one of those people who is so incredibly gifted to where you can experience a level of musicality that no one else can, that requires you restricting yourself, of confining yourself, of going through the narrow gate. You see? Right? And of course, this applies to other areas of life, such as in relationships too. I remember I had a friend while I was in seminary dating his girlfriend for years. We're talking about seven years. And all of us are like, dude, what are you doing stringing along this sister? What are you doing sitting on your butt? Get a ring on it, right? Beyonce was popular at the time. If you want it, then you better put a ring on it, boy. Right? We kept saying that to him. He's like, oh, I don't know. I don't know if she's the one. Seven years, you still don't know if she's the what? In a moment of sober honesty, he said, John, I'm scared, man. I'm scared. Because even though I love her, by saying I do, I'm also saying I don't to anyone else. Right? And I was like, dang. That's pretty bad. It's pretty rough. I got married. He saw how happy I was. So I was like, maybe there's something to this. So he ended up marrying this girl. Within a year, I should have done this so much sooner. I should have done this so much sooner, right? Because by confining myself to this woman, I have a certain experience of joy and love that I didn't even have just by dating her. Why did I wait? Why did I not do what I should have done, right? The same principle applies when it comes to your relationship with God. When you go into the narrow gate with God, when you go all in with him, radically, to where it's just me and you, Lord, just me and you. Above all things and above all people, it's me and you. Scripture says, you have encountered the best of life. In fact, you've encountered the best of all possible bests of life. You've gone through the best narrow gate, much better than being a musical prodigy, much better than having the best marriage, right? Why? Because you get God. Now, I know some of you are thinking right now, wow, that was so anticlimactic, right? Yeah, I know that's the right thing to say, pastor, because you're the pastor. You're supposed to say God is the best of all best things. God is the best narrow gate to go through, right? But let's be honest. Maybe God doesn't practically feel like the best thing. Maybe being in a concert pianist, you know, or being in a great marriage, maybe honestly that feels better. Maybe that's better. Maybe that's the best narrow gate for you. Maybe it's Jesus for others, but I don't think it might be for me. Right? How do I know that of all the various narrow gates that I could go through in this life, 
that offer some really good experiences and some really amazing experiences of life. What makes God the best of out of all the narrow gates that are available to me? Right? Here's my answer. Because the radical commitment that will be required of you to go into the narrow gate with God is nothing compared to the radical commitment that God first makes to you. Right? Let me say that again. The radical commitment that is required for you to go all in with God by going into the narrow gate with him is nothing compared to the first radical commitment he gives to you. What am I talking about? I'm talking about the gospel, right? What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God, who is the most unlimited person, who has the most freedom in the world. He can be whoever he wants to be. He can do whatever he wants to do. He can go wherever he wants to go. He is not confined by space or time. Limited himself by becoming a man, Jesus Christ. Coming into the world before there was Google, before there was New York, right? Before there was Facebook. Living in a town that is so obscure no one has ever heard of. Into a family that no one even knew existed. Why? So that he could come into the world as a human being and suffer the penalty for human sin, right? By being our savior substitute that he did when he died on the cross. So that if you put your faith in him, you would have the best possible life. And you know what life that is? That's eternal life. A life that never ends. A life that goes on forever and ever. A life that is not limited by space and time. A life filled with absolute freedom. But freedom to do what? What exactly are we to do with this freedom? Turn with me to Galatians chapter 5, where there the Apostle Paul tells us exactly what we're to do with this freedom that comes with eternal life. For you have been called to live in freedom, my brothers and sisters. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use your freedom to serve one another in love. For the whole law can be summed up in this one command. Love your neighbor as yourself. What is Paul saying here? He's saying this. When you fully understand, not just cognitively, when you fully understand and you really believe the radical love God has for you through Jesus Christ, right? That will change you. You know how that changes you? It changes you in such a way that you feel most yourself. You feel most free when you love others as you love yourself. But more importantly, when you want other people to be recipients of your service to them rather than expecting other people to serve you. One of the ways that you know you've been truly saved, one of the ways you really know that you understand the gospel is that you feel most yourself when you're able to give, not receive. When you feel like you take more pleasure, more desire in serving others rather than expecting other people to serve you. Do you get that? Because Paul ends it with this command that Jesus gave us in the Gospels. Love others as yourself. You know, when Jesus gives us that command, he's not simply saying love others the way that you want to be loved. But he's also defining the new nature we get when we believe the gospel. One of the ways that you know you have a new nature because of your faith in Jesus is that you feel yourself. You feel most yourself when you're serving rather than being served. Right? That's the byproduct of going into the narrow gate with Jesus. Now, we come back to the question at hand. What, instead, what would happen instead that you went into the narrow gate with music? Let's just keep the analogy that we started off with. Let's say, instead of choosing to go into the narrow gate of Jesus, you decide to go into the narrow gate of musical accomplishment. You become this great artist, this great celebrity singer, buying records off the 
Everyone is going to your concerts and so forth. You ever been around musical celebrities? Very rarely will you find one that's down to earth. Very rarely do you see one that's all about serving others, but instead they have an entourage of all about serving them, right? Let me ask you, what is the better product, byproduct? What is the better outcome of a person when it comes to the kinds of narrow gates that they could go through in life? You go through musical talent, athletic talent, academic talent, and the outcome usually tends to be a very narcissistic diva, right? You go into the narrow gate with Jesus, and you end up becoming like the one who you're with, the Savior of the world who gives his life for many for the sake of being a blessing to the world. Which narrow gate is better for the world? Which narrow gate is better for this community? You see, my whole point of what I'm trying to teach you today is that there is a profound difference to the radical things that you could be committed to. You can be radically committed to music, to making money, to making a name for yourself, and you can turn out a totally different way by being radically committed to Jesus. The question is, which commitment is going to make it easy for you to look in the mirror as well as make you a blessing to the world? The choice is yours. Which is it going to be? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to see this idea of the lesson of the wider and narrow gate. Father, we know that there are many things in life that will open up to us if we commit radically to them, whether it be to making a name for ourselves, whether it's developing a certain talent, whether it's being lucrative and successful. But Lord, we also see another vision that comes when we are committed radically to you, when we enter into the narrow gate with Jesus. And Father, I pray for all of us that that would be true of us, not for our own sakes, but also for the sake of this world. Father, we need Christians in this world because this world is dying. It is decaying. It is becoming decrepit. And it's giving off an odious scent that is making the whole world want to vomit. And Father, we look to so many different things and to so many different types of people to be our hope. But Father, as we enter into this Advent season, we ask that we would remember the true hope that came to us thousands of years ago a hope that was prophesied in ancient days and a hope that still goes on now in these modern times. God, help us to cling to the hope of Jesus, the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith. And may we truly be recipients of this faith in such a way that we become transformed in being the kinds of people that love others as we love ourselves. For Father, there is no other way in which we can live this kind of lifestyle that will be a hope to the world. God, would you do that now? For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.